Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 88. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. I'm going to do my best to keep it together. Because it has all gone too far. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. My boss, Secretary Raffensperger, his address is out there. They have people doing caravans in front of their house. They've had people come onto their property. Trisha, his wife of 40 years, is getting sexualized threats through her cell phone. It has to stop. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. I can't begin to explain the level of anger I have right now over this. And every American, every Georgian, Republican and Democrat alike should have that same level of anger. It has all gone too far. It has. That's Gabrielle Sterling. He's Georgia's voting system implementation manager. And he's a Republican. And he's angry. And rightfully so. It has all gone too far. All year long, it's gone too far. And now, December is here. One final hard month of the hardest year most of us have ever had. It's all gone too far. But that impassioned plea won't stop President Mayhem. It won't stop the threats. It won't stop the fury, and it won't stop the pandemic. It's all here. It's finally here. The moment we've all been bracing for. It's here. John, a raven came from the citadel. A white raven. Winter is here. Yes, winter is here. The winter we've all been bracing for. All year long on this show, we've talked about the three storms that have been battering and bashing our country. The three storms that will determine the future of our country. The pandemic, the election, and the racial justice reckoning anchored by the Black Lives Matter movement. Three devastating 
history-defining storms. They've ebbed and flowed all year long. Like top college football teams, consistently trading places, but always with the same three at the top. They're the top story of your newspaper, your cable TV, your Twitter feed. And sometimes they go quieter, only to rage back to the top a few weeks later. But all three of these major storms are converging and cresting as winter is here. And we've got one last stormy month of 2020 to ride. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. The storms are all converging, and winter is here. And while it's been a relatively quiet few weeks for the storms of racial injustice and civil unrest, that storm has not passed. And in the end, it may be the longest of the three. That storm's not over. We may just be in the eye of it. But the pandemic is the storm that's now fully front and center. And as snow is falling in many parts of America, the virus is raging hotter than ever before. This will forever be the winter of the pandemic. The economy is continuing to collapse. Hiring is slowing down. Unemployment claims are staying at catastrophically high levels. Poverty is soaring. GDP is going down and could actually fall into negative territory. And even if Congress is able to push out another emergency supplemental by the end of the year, we're likely headed into a recession. And that economic collapse and our increased national security risk is all fueled by the pandemic and the staggering loss of life unfolding nationwide. And nowhere is that devastation more infuriating than within the veterans community and at the Department of Veterans Affairs. VA closed out November with its deadliest month so far. 1,000 patient and 12 staff deaths recorded in November alone. Active cases are still at or near 15,000, which is up 356% from October 1st and 147% from November 1st. But the VA has always just been a reflection of what's happening nationwide. The daily death toll from the pandemic just hit a record of 2,804 people. And many experts fear it'll soon hit 4,000 a day. 4,000 Americans dying a day. That's like a 9-11 every single day. And a record high 100,226 COVID patients are now hospitalized in the United States. And the mayor of Los Angeles just issued a stark and serious message to start December. My message couldn't be simpler. It's time to hunker down. It's time to cancel everything. And if it isn't essential, don't do it. Don't meet up with others outside your household. Don't host a gathering. Don't attend a gathering. And following our targeted safer at home order, if you're able to stay home, stay home. So to start December, 
the mayor of Los Angeles is telling residents to cancel everything to stop the spread of the virus. L.A. Mayor Garcetti says the city will run out of hospital beds by Christmas if the coronavirus spreads at the current rate. So winter is here. Even in Los Angeles, winter is here. From L.A. to Brooklyn, from Puerto Rico to Miami, and this time, it's hitting red states hard, too. The winter is going to mean one thing. For travel, for tourism, for restaurants, for gatherings, for schools, and maybe even for sports, winter is going to mean one thing in America. Our friend Chuck D said it. The shutdown is here. Again. And the election storm is far from past. It's wrapped up in all of it. President Mayhem and his allies still refuse to accept the results, declaring clearly and definitively that Joe Biden was elected in a free and secure election by a margin of now more than 7 million votes. And as I predicted, President Mayhem is not going quietly. He's going down guns blazing. Maybe the most destructive political suicide bomber we have ever seen in American history has more than a full month left to wreak havoc and mayhem on our country and the world. And as the weather grows colder, he's firing heat rounds off at anyone and anything, blasting out outrageous pardons with many more to come, firing shots at enemies and allies alike with Attorney General Bill Barr becoming the latest target in his crosshairs of friendly fire. And his outrageous, unprecedented, dangerous attacks on the Pentagon are only escalating. This continues to be the most underreported story in the nation. President Mayhem's purge of the Pentagon, his hidden war against our warriors and our Department of War, is only escalating. Our national security continues to be under attack from within, and most damagingly of all, from our lame duck, unstable, destructive, reckless, selfish commander-in-chief. After starting at the top with Secretary of Defense Mark Esper last month, President Mayhem's continued to attack our Defense Department, and another top Pentagon official is out. Christopher Meyer, the director of the Pentagon's Defeat ISIS Task Force, since its inception in 2017, has resigned. His duties and responsibilities were, quote, absorbed by the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Special Operations. So Trump continues to chop heads at the Pentagon. And now, he's even threatening to veto the defense budget as the mayhem in the Pentagon continues. The bipartisan $740 billion defense authorization bill affects things like troop levels, new weapon systems, and military personnel pay. It also mandates presumptive benefit status for Vietnam vets with bladder cancer and Parkinson's. 
It's a bipartisan critical bill, and Trump's threatening to veto it. Trump's even getting blasted by Republicans. Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman Jim Inhofe, Republican from Oklahoma, said, quote, if we don't have this defense authorization bill passed by December 31st, our pilots are not going to get flight pay. The kids are not going to get hazard pay. The whole thing will fall apart. It's got to be done. But President Mayhem is threatening to veto it. First, he threatened to veto it because it contained a provision to rename military bases after Confederate generals. Confederate generals who were traitors to America and racists. Maybe that one hit too close to home for him. Well, now he's threatening to veto the defense budget unless Congress agrees to end a federal law that provides social media companies with a crucial legal shield because he's mad at Twitter. In a bunch of late night tweets, President Mayhem demanded Congress include a repeal of the law known as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in order for it to receive his signature. For months, he's been pushing on Congress to strip social media companies of protections they receive under this 24-year-old law. He claims platforms like Twitter and Facebook censor and suppress conservative speech. So he's threatening to blow up the entire defense budget because he's pissed off at Twitter. For 59 years straight, the Defense Authorization Act has passed because both parties put aside their differences and put the needs of our military and our national security first. But not this time. The political suicide bomber that is President Mayhem does not give a shit. It's insane that we're actually planning for our president to veto the defense budget. It's just the latest of his many insults to our military and our veterans, and it's another reason our enemies are celebrating. President Mayhem is like the king of the White Walkers blowing up our wall, which in this case is our Pentagon. He continues to remove opposition, consolidate power, and ensure loyalty at the top of the most powerful department in the U.S. government, the Pentagon, the place that's still fighting our wars from Afghanistan to Somalia, the place that has our nukes, the place that's the largest employer in America. So much of what's happening in Washington is important right now. But at the Pentagon, it's especially urgent. Stakes is always high at the Pentagon, and especially now, and especially in the fight against the pandemic. The Pentagon is a place that will soon serve a critical role in the distribution of the vaccine, a vaccine that will be hitting people's bodies in just a few weeks, just when we need it the most, because our war against the virus is about to meet our defining battle. This winter, this month, is our battle of the bulge in our war against the virus. Winston Churchill called the Battle of the Bulge the greatest American battle of the war. Hitler's last major offensive in World War II against the Western Front in the Ardennes region of Belgium began in December, December 16th. It was the bloodiest battle ever fought by the U.S. Army, which suffered over 100,000 casualties. And it was fought in cold that was legendary and brutal. The U.S. troops suffered more than 15,000 cold injuries alone. Trench foot, pneumonia, frostbite. 
For weeks of brutal cold, U.S. troops endured tremendous losses, but they hunkered down. They kept faith. And after weeks of unthinkable pain and cold, the weather cleared on Christmas morning. And the Americans turned the tide, won the battle, and would go on to win the war. It was the most brutal winter in our military's history, and its most important one. The reinforcements of American aircraft and General Patton's fabled 3rd Army Division provided reinforcements to turn the tide that winter. And that's what incoming leadership and the vaccine will do for our war against the pandemic this winter. It'll be a shot in the arm for our healthcare workers and our nursing home patients first, and for our national effort to defeat the virus. And we need it now more than ever. The vaccine is the ammunition and the reinforcements that our frontline fighters have been waiting for. Frontline fighters, like our guest in this episode. He's a leader we spoke to in the first days of the war, back in April, when New York City was ground zero, and America was just starting to fully grasp what was happening all around us. We're calling out to him once again, because the storm of the pandemic is raging this winter, and despite the cold, our country is on fire. And with a vaccine coming, we need a doctor. While the weather turns cold, our country is burning with the virus. And we need a doctor to help us understand what's really happening. More than ever, we need the doctors all across this country, and we need to celebrate those doctors. And in this urgent episode, we will talk again with one of those brave fighters in the brutal, expanding war against the coronavirus. A hero who is right now fighting COVID-19 and saving lives, as he has been since March and the earliest days of the pandemic. We talked to him eight months ago, and he's been fighting the virus ever since. Dr. Paul Hazer is a brilliant and heroic emergency surgeon at Brookdale Hospital Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, a front line in our global war against the coronavirus. Paul's hospital was one of the first that truly became a war zone. And like the storm of the pandemic, it quieted for a bit, only to come roaring back now. And again, Paul's Hospital is a critical battlefield in the war against the virus. In March, it was a beachhead. It was our Pearl Harbor, the first to get really hit by the virus. Now, as the virus has consumed our entire country, that beachhead has become occupied territory. Brooklyn was once Pearl Harbor. Now, it's like occupied France. And we're all part of the resistance. And Dr. Paul Hazer is leading that resistance. The CDC director was talking about December, November, February going to be very tough for this country because even with the vaccine on the horizon, you know, it's not there yet, you know, so we're waiting for reinforcements in a way, mm. you know, I've never been in battle, thankfully. And, and I know you've mentioned before that you, you can't know what it's like unless you're actually in it. Uh, and, and maybe in some ways, you know, the comparison doesn't, isn't quite the same, but I do feel like we're, we're in the, you know, waiting for the reinforcements and we see, we know they're coming, but are they going to get here in time kind of thing? Mm. Dr. Paul Hazer is a hero 
and a hero that must be heard. Before the fight against COVID-19, he volunteered in Haiti after the catastrophic earthquake. He also served at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany, the only forward station medical center for U.S. and coalition forces. When he was there, he treated combat injuries and performed the first endovascular aortic graft implementation procedure ever, saving the life of an American sniper who had a piece of shrapnel next to his heart. Dr. Hazer's been on the ground after natural disasters and treating soldiers coming off the battlefield. Now, he's on the forward edge of our fight against the coronavirus, inside one of the hardest-hit hospitals in the world. A dangerous place, surrounded by the enemy. But he's a hero that can help you better prepare for the raging storm that is not just coming. The raging storm that's here, as winter is here. And this conversation is a prescription for all Americans. I'm no doctor, but it's a script I'm writing for all of you to help you prepare for what's to come. Thanksgiving is over. And yeah, the holidays are here, but so is winter. And before Santa could load up that sleigh, he's got to load up on vitamin C and anything else that can help him defend against the winter and the rising pandemic. This episode is a super dose of the four eyes to help brace you for the cold winter ahead. It's a heaping, potent spoonful of integrity. It's a painful injection of information. It's a massive, classic chicken noodle soup bowl of inspiration. And it's a vaccine of impact. The doctor is in the house. Welcome to a conversation about what we've all endured, where we're at, and what's still to come. It's a flu shot of content to prepare your body, your mind, and your heart for the cold and dangerous days ahead. Welcome back to the doctor's office. Welcome to winter 2020. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 88. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the globe, we have a very important returning champion joining us here on Angry Americans, one of the bravest uh, guests we've ever had on this show. And it's really come full circle. We talked to him in April at the beginning of the pandemic, and here we are eight months later. He's still at it. Uh, He's a friend of mine. He's an incredibly inspiring, important American who's on the front line of everything we're facing as a country right now. And he's joining us in the middle of, of a shift, essentially. The great and powerful Dr. Paul Hazer is back on Angry Americans. How are you, my friend? Uh, thank you, Paul. I'm, uh, I'm glad to see your face. I miss seeing it in person. Um, I'm doing well. The family's well. I know you always ask uh, how people are. And um, we're sort of hunkered down, you know, dealing with the issues of... Uh, School, no school, part-time school, um, and um, I think the New York City school system's gotten things down a little better. So now that um, we have these apps that seem to really help us as well, although uh, about eight different uh, sign-ins with different passwords, etc., 
feels like it's our own school. Um, and um, at the hospital where I'm at right now, at Brookdale, um, it it feels a little bit like we're seeing the back end of a of a hurricane. You know, you, you had the eye where things really did calm down uh, a lot, and then now we're starting to see it ramp up, and it's um, it's frustrating and a bit uh, scary. And um, but we also kind of know what we're in for, mm. and um, I think we're also all feeling really badly or empathy for all of the healthcare workers that are on the ongoing, you know, we've talked about it, this is like kind of a war. It, it, it's really now they're in the battle, they're in the heat of the battle. Um, and there's this sense of, of uh, you know, compatriotism uh, and also feeling like, oh, I, the dread, almost like a PTSD of, mm. oh, we, here we go again. You know, so, so let's let's start with where you are physically. Can you tell us where you are right now? And uh, and and for folks who maybe didn't hear the first episode with you, you know where you are and what you do. So I I'm in my office now in Brooklyn at uh, East New York uh, Brookdale Hospital, um, part of the One Brooklyn Health System that's being set up. And right now I'm in the hospital itself in my office. So. Um, and um, uh, I'm a vascular surgeon, so this is, you know, my, my area of expertise is not coronavirus and, and viruses at all, really. But it turns out that, um, and something that we didn't see actually even in April as much, is that uh, COVID-19 actually uh, has a tremendous problem with blood clotting. And so we became very involved initially just helping our nephrologists, our kidney specialists with, with lines so they could put people on dialysis temporarily to where we had a lot of patients who came in with blood clots in places that they would never have expected um, and really out of the blue. Uh, and it became almost a diagnostic sign that they had, even if the tests were negative, we'd say sometimes they had kind of burned through their COVID um, uh, viral titers in the nose that they would swab but they had all the symptoms of a sort of this, this clotting problem that was occurring and is, is occurring. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. Um, and, uh, and happy to, happy to fill you in on more details. Well, as, folks, as, uh, folks who are listening can't see where you are. If you're listening, I encourage you to go to angryamericans.us. You can watch the video of this conversation, but you know, we always talk about the background, everything that, that is around you physically. You've got pictures of your family. You've got a, a, a Rite Aid bag, which shows me that you've been basically living in your office. But I, I asked you before, there's a thing behind you that almost looks like a, a karate mat. Can you tell me, tell everyone, what is that? That, yeah, I, I actually, uh, I didn't steal it because I'm, I'm still, it's here and I'm working on it, but I took it off of one of the stretchers from the emergency room. Uh, and I use it, um, for some of the late nights to, I just lay it down in my office, uh, just so I can crash basically there. Uh, there's been several times when I've had to come in in the middle of the night or stay very, very late, uh, that I've wound up actually staying over. So I kind of just set that up. It's, it's supposed to look like a little door. Like you don't even realize it's there. <laughs> so my uh, wife tells me I'm, I'm much, I'm, I shouldn't be lying on the floor, you know, as a as an attending surgeon. Uh, but you know, we we had also what happened after the first wave 
uh, with COVID really started to fall off and people started going outside was that we had over a 200% increase in our trauma hmm. um, associated probably in, in part with the, the whole movement with the Black, Black, Black Lives Matters and the, the defund the police, et cetera, that had gone on and a lot more violence. And so we wound up with a lot more vascular trauma as well. So it's been a busy summer for sure. So you're literally going to, at the point of attack on on the two storm, we've talked about on my show, the two storms that are hitting this move for racial justice and civil unrest and COVID, and they're both intersecting at your hospital, right? Which, yeah. is, which is a place that deals with trauma on a regular basis when there's not a pandemic happening, right? You get gunshots and stabbings and violent crimes and things like that, right? So you're, yes. in, you're, in, you're in a kind of a combat zone all the time. It feels yeah. like a combat. You, you got your bed there. I can remember those days of sleeping in the office when I was in the Army. But that cuts to, I think, the sacrifices that you and your colleagues have been making for nine months, man. Nine months went by like that, right? We were talking with you in the, with you in the beginning, and Brooklyn was like Pearl Harbor. You were the first wave to get hit. Now you're like Occupy France, right? Everything is behind enemy lines. The virus is everywhere. And it's been nine months. Paul, what is this like for your people? For the people you've been working on, grinding this out for nine months when everybody was at Memorial Day and Thanksgiving dinners or whatever they were doing, and a lot of folks were hunkered down and doing the right things, but what, what has it been like for you guys? You know, it's, it's been, it comes in waves. There's times when people just, you know, you'll hear a secretary go, I can't take it any longer. This is just making me insane. And then they kind of look back and they go, well, you know, look, we have zoom we can facetime with people we can you know we have our family um but we've had some losses within our own um clinic uh, right around the corner the the chair of the department of dental dentistry and oromaxillofacial trauma who was a terrific guy you know two weeks ago got sick with covid and five days later he died mm -hmm. um my secretary that i was you know in love with i have her your listeners can't hear it, uh, but I can describe. I have this cat uh, cup. She uh, was working from home, and uh, then when she came back in, you know, I don't know that she had COVID or not, but she came back in, and two weeks later, she died at home. Mm. Um, so we've had a lot of losses here as well, and it and it really strikes you then, and it, you know, it makes you afraid. It makes you realize, like, I'm gonna, you know, I got my masks. My, my N95 and my surgical mask that I wear, I always double double up, um, and and we we take constant care of it. So it's sort of like maintaining vigilance. I guess we're like the the people on the watch mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. You know, we know we have to, we can't let our guard down, mm -hmm. uh, and or the consequences can be severe. And you know, God forbid, we can give it to someone else or something like that, even if we aren't going to be affected by it directly. So um, I, I think everybody is, we feel in some ways now like it's shifted now. It's sort of like, okay, we're in for the long run. And um, I know um, I was reading uh, the CDC director was talking about December, November, February going to be very tough for this country because even with the vaccine on the horizon, you know, it's not there yet, you know. So we're waiting for reinforcements in a way. Mm. You know, I've never been in battle, thankfully. And, and I know you've mentioned before that you, you can't, know what it's like unless you're actually in it uh and and maybe in some ways you know the comparison doesn't isn't quite the same but i do feel like we're we're in the you know waiting for the reinforcements and we see we know they're coming but 
are they going to get here in time kind of thing. Mm. Um, thank you for sharing so much. Um, I know that sharing these kinds of things is, is, is hard too. And you've been very brave about doing that. And I'm grateful for you to tell the stories of your colleagues and, and these folks that are in the trenches with you. Yeah. I mean, I used to say that there were two things you could never understand unless you experienced them combat and parenthood. And now I put, uh, now I put the pandemic in there too. Like we're going to talk to people and say, you didn't know what it was like unless you lived in the pandemic, but you're, you know, you're, you're in it. And, and I wanted to ask you, Paul, to share, you were texting me as we were setting this up. I said, Hey, can you do this? Do you have the time? And you said, yeah, you know, it's, it's good timing because we're experiencing losses. You talked to me about like your wound clinic and some of the other, can you, can you put numbers against this to show how hard yeah. you guys are? Yeah. So we, we, for instance, have been setting up a, a limb salvage, limb preservation, diabetic foot uh, clinic. And um, we had one of our meetings set up and everybody in the clinic that worked there has COVID. So the secretaries, the nurses, the uh, you know, advanced practice uh, nurse practitioner, et cetera. So that's four people, but it affects 20 some people that were gonna come in. And it's gonna be at least two weeks. I mean, you know, we're, we're praying that they don't, uh, that they, they were diagnosed early, that they're getting treatment, that they're you know, keeping an eye on them. Uh, uh, and, and we've seen, you know, I think on Monday, we had about 21 patients in the hospital a couple of days ago, 34 with the 34 that were, they call persons under investigation. Um, and, um, of those, the majority of them are, are turning positive. So I, I won't doubt by, by next week, we'll have 80 patients in the hospital. Um, we've had, we have an, an internist who's in the intensive care unit. Here, so you know it, it does strike home, um, uh, and and makes you realize, wow, this is, you know, you you know you you do feel a little bit like, uh, oh, I'm sitting in line in the trenches somewhere, and my my partner just got taken out, you know, and again, that may be too dramatic a comparison, but it, oh, it certainly it it uh, it makes you realize that, and um, you know, I give kudos to my wife uh, and and the family because they're very uh understanding and supportive she sends me very healthy foods you know we're eating extra pomegranate and, <laughs> and green tea and things like that as well but uh, yeah your wife is awesome and um, and we miss you guys you know you know that and uh what what is it you know we talked about this before for the families it, it is like being a military family it's like you're deployed to the front lines and it's hard on them too you know um what what is it like to be in a hospital where, you know, people are sick all around you. And then, you know, how do you go home? I mean, can you go home? Do you, you know, shower in the hall? What do you do to not bring this home? And how do you, how do you negotiate that now? And, and you've been doing it for months, but what is that part of it like for you and so many others? Cause I don't think folks really appreciate how hard that part of it is. You know, in some ways it's, it's become a routine, but it's, and, and the hard part is almost, making sure you don't get complacent that you don't think, ah, oh, this time I don't need to worry, you know, because that's in the back of my mind. I think always like one of the, one of the physicians had compared this to glitter that, you know, the makeup you can never get off, wow. uh, you know, um, and that, you know, I, I think for, for me and for all of my colleagues, we, we really have to reinforce that, that it's very important to keep to the routine. So in some ways it's become easy because it's the same thing every day it's like putting on a uniform and taking it off and so for me i i still change 
out of uh, the scrubs that I'm wearing at the hospital into a fresh set of scrubs. Even still, when I get home, I, I, you know, everybody knows, which is good. The family, even the dog. Yeah, we got a COVID dog too. <laughs> a little cute little Australian mini dog. Um, and even she knows now that I'm in charge and she doesn't come over. I go into the, to the side bathroom and I, I shower, you know, basically do a, a, a standing in shower and then change into some fresh clothes mm -hmm. so that there's sort of an additional layer. And I just do that every day, every time I come home. And every time I leave, I'm putting back those scrubs. I get to the hospital. I change those into the, to the work scrubs. So it's been a routine like that. The, the glitter thing is so powerful. I had actually separately was explaining to Ryder, my son, this week, what a glitter bomb was. Um, and, and, and if you think of COVID as kind of like a glitter bomb, right? I mean, you, it's everywhere and you can't get it off you. It's, it's a really powerful way of thinking about it that I think is, is probably going to be one of the things about this conversation that people are, are, are left with that'll resonate with them and how they think about it. But let me ask you, Paul, when we were talking in, in the spring, you guys didn't have PPE. Um, you were fighting to get recognition and support. You were like, you know, soldiers in combat without ammunition and body armor. Um, it's, it's nine months later, if, you know, president elect Joe Biden calls you up and says, what do you guys need? Or the American public says, you know, you get 30 seconds on TV. What do you need? Paul, what do you need? I think we are going to need more PPE. We, we are still scraping along. Um, we, we found ways to sort of reuse uh, a lot of our PPE and to have it sterilized at, kind of put it on a rotation, et cetera. But I do think uh, ourselves and a lot of our hospitals are going to need that. You know, I think one of the main things we really need um, that we have discussed a lot, we have high trauma, as we talked about. We also have an incredibly wonderful uh, interventional cardiology group that has one of the best rates of cardiac recovery after um, a heart attack. And our chairman was asking, how can we save these people that have you know, been shot right across through the heart, right above the heart? Or, you know, they come in with major MIs, uh, myocardial infarction, heart attacks, and, and we, we have such a good rate. And I was explaining, you know, as we looked at that, that there's a, between 14 and 21 people per patient that take care of those patients. And with COVID, people come in and there's maybe 20 patients and one person to take care of them. So we need a lot better coordination to recognize, almost like calling a code COVID that these people come in. And I do think the patients and the reason the mortality rate's gone down a lot, and thankfully at our institution as well, is because we understand things a lot better. We can get into that later. But I think that we need a better coordination. Um, we need someone to recognize, for instance, when the, um, the military ship, I can't remember, the Mercy of the Hope came up, the mm -hmm. Hudson, everybody was so excited. We couldn't, we didn't have a phone number to call to send our patients there. The time we sent our patient, we had to send five days worth of supplies, and we were coordinating that ourselves. And that's down to the, you know, pillowcases. Mm. So that kind of thing needs to be readjusted, and that's sort of a, a playbook, uh, I think, set up so that you can say, "Oh, here's the number to call." You know, the Staples button. You know, hit yeah, hit the yeah. red button, and boom, patient gets transferred. That kind of thing. That's what I'm hoping for. That's. That's, that's clarity we need to hear. And it's shocking and outrageous. And, you know, uh, if there's a reason to be angry that is justified and say you guys still don't have PPE, 
And there's the old military saying that amateurs focus on strategy, experts focus on logistics. A lot of what you're talking about is logistics, right? And coordination at the national level all the way down through, which we've never had. And, and I think people will still be surprised to hear that in a frontline hospital in New York City, you still are in that position, which is infuriating, but helpful to get that clarity from you. But let me ask you what you kind of touched on. What have you learned? It's nine months later. You've learned a lot about the virus. You're saving more lives. People have a higher, looks like, survival rate. Um, You all are obviously now grizzled veterans of this fight. But what have you learned about uh, how to tackle it? And, And maybe what have you learned about yourself and leadership throughout this? Um, well, uh, you know, from pragmatic things such as putting people on blood thinners uh, quicker um, and trusting our, our di- clinical um, intuition towards a diagnosis rather than actually having the test positive or negative. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I started to read the New England Journal of Medicine, which I hadn't read for a long time other than specialty articles for vascular. And, um, and I realized that I've also learned that there's a lot more to know about this than I know. Um, and, and that there are a lot of people smarter than me who really have studied this. As, as I said, you know, I'm a vascular surgeon, so it's not necessarily an area that I'm directly involved with. But we've learned about, I think what you said, I think logistics play a huge role in, in saving lives. You know, uh, we lost patients before because they would disconnect from their oxygen to get up to use the bathroom. They wouldn't call a nurse or, you know, there wasn't enough nurses to watch out. So we know now to keep a closer watch on those patients. And we also know to really avoid intubating patients because that uh, seems to be, uh, in some cases we have to, but uh, we've definitely stretched the limit in terms of that and looked again more at clinical things rather than the numbers because this virus behaves differently than some of the other SARS uh, viruses had in the past, the MERS, et cetera. And in terms of um, leadership, uh, you know, I, I think we're all, I think all of my colleagues um, have, have sort of taken up the helm in recognizing both personally to take care of the patients, but also um, in terms of trying to get information up the chain to, to Albany, to Washington, D.C., um, I am kind of excited about President-elect uh, Biden um, and uh, ho- hoping some, some, maybe you can connect with uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who I know you had on the show and I met, uh, thankfully, back in the days so of the, the real in-live person uh, filming <clears throat> and uh, taping, um, that, um, that getting someone in logistics and setting up a playbook um, can make a huge difference for everybody. You got it. I'll, I'll send notes to anybody who will listen. And, and I think that a lot of folks are, are listening now to you and looking to you and others to cut through the bullshit. And especially when there's such a con- conflict coming out of the White House and what you're, you're experiencing on the ground, it's, it's sobering. Um, but it's also inspiring. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the vaccine? You know, we're hearing it could hit places in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, going to uh, frontline health workers, I assume that means people like you, uh, and also into nursing homes. You know, what are your thoughts on a virus as someone who's likely to be at the front of the line, rightfully so, to, to get it? So, you know, it's interesting because I, I think one of the things that isn't being talked about with the vaccine is actually testing people mm. for antibodies. 
um, to see whether or not they already have developed antibodies. I, it turns out I actually have antibodies mm -hmm. to Corona. Now, I don't know the titer, uh, but I don't know, therefore, that I'll need to get a vaccine or certainly I, I might not be the first in line for it. I think the study's been very good for, um, for it's been incredible, actually. And, you know, you can give kudos to even President Trump for the warp speed and, and Vice President Pence for, for helping, basically paying, paying the uh, companies to really push this through. And I, I do think, and I, I do listen to Dr. Fauci fairly regularly. I think that I, I trust what he's saying uh, and um, also the example he's setting, uh, which the other two hadn't been. Mm -hmm. um, about um, about the vaccine uh, and about what its options are. And I, I think I'll digress just for one second to say, you know, it was almost in some ways unfortunate that uh, President Trump got COVID when he did because he had give, gave this impression that it's not that serious, that, oh, you can get over it. You know, I don't know how much money was spent on the president. And I'm not saying don't spend it, but for four different physicians, you know, hospitalized, you know, the very latest, very expensive uh, medications um, and very strong medications. And then to give people the impression that, oh, I'm immune. I don't need to wear a mask, even though you don't we don't even know if even with immunity, you can't spread it. You probably could. Um, you could pass that glitter along, even if it's not going into your own body. So um, so I think I do think that I, I'm, I'm very hopeful, honestly, for the vaccine. I'm a little concerned about the fact that we don't know what the long-term, you know, two-year, four-year uh, data is going to be in terms of could it affect white cells, could it affect the red cells, or how we process other infections and stuff, and that's just an unknown. So it is a sort of a risk-benefit thing um, to do, but I do I also think that, you know, there's five different companies working on this. There are some of them that have been actually working on this vaccine um, at a, a much slower pace for many years before. So in terms of that, I think that at least for adults and for the uh, nursing home people, I think there's some, some hope. That, that, that's the question I was going to ask you also, Paul, is what gives you hope? And I think, you know, you're seeing some of the deepest pain. You see that even when there's not a pandemic. But can you talk about your colleagues? Can you talk about the, the heroism that I, that I don't think, frankly, gets enough? You see a lot of folks on TV um, you know, talking about the pain and talking about how hard it is. But, you know, somebody uh, told me once, when you go to combat, they always ask you how many people you killed. They never asked you how many people you helped. And I think, you know, they always ask you how many did you lose, but you guys are saving people every day. So can you talk about the, the heroes that are alongside of you, many of whom are unsung? Yeah, you know, uh, for instance, we had a, a, a one of our nurses uh, uh, from the night um, uh, shift who um, got the uh, coronavirus early and wound up quite ill for a long time hospitalized. And uh, when he came home, you know, the entire hospital was cheering for him. You know, they had a whole thing, an overhead speaker and such. And I think there's been a, a lot of hope in terms of that, that, that the, the mor mortality rate is much lower than it was, that we do feel like we know it a little bit better. There's in some ways, we're not quite as afraid. You know, my colleagues now, I had some that were weren't even going home at all. That were not seeing their families, were sleeping in an apartment, etc. Now I think they feel like, okay, if we follow these routines um, to keep everybody secure, we can have a semblance of a pretty good life, um, and we can celebrate, like you're saying, the wins, celebrate uh, the saves and stuff. I think that um, everybody, 
that I know that I work with is very humble. They don't feel like they're big heroes. They're just doing their job. Um, and you know, I, I feel the same way too. It, it's just, we're, we're taking our precautions and, and then we're taking care of the people that we, uh, that we can. And, you know, we're grateful in, the, in some ways that the patients come in to trust us in terms of that. I think earlier in the pandemic, a lot of people wouldn't even come to the hospital. They were afraid they were going to get it mm-hmm. or that this was going to be the time. And I think now we're really working very hard to make sure that they feel comfortable with that. That gives us some hope as well. Uh, uh, how do you, a lot of the country's feeling burnt out, right? And they feel like, you know, I'm tired of wearing a mask. I'm tired of doing this. I'm tired of homeschool. You, you're a guy who has more of a right to be tired than pretty much anybody, but yet you keep pushing forward. And, you know, we on this show have been encouraging everybody to hunker down, hang in there, keep driving on. There is hope out there, right? We've got to be really diligent for what could be four months, five months, six months, might be eight months, but there is a light down there now at the end of the tunnel that we can see and we can see what the future will look like. We got to hang in and stick together, but it's still really hard. How do you deal with how hard it is, Paul? You know, I think uh, vive la resistance, you know, (laughs) as you said, you know, we're, we're like the uh, occupied France, you know, in some ways, New York does feel a little bit that way. You know, it's, it's reopened, but not completely. There's still lots of empty restaurants, lots of um, empty places and people we haven't seen. So, but as you mentioned, you know, there is, there is the hope of this light at the end of the tunnel. And in some part, you know, what New York went through and the fact that we were able to really break, break the curve as, as uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, Governor Cuomo said, um, that gives us hope as well that, yeah, if we do the right things, if we shut her down, you know, stay frosty, as you said, um, that we are going to break this curve again. And I think we're also, you know, hopeful. Um, I think, well, between the lower rate of, of death and the higher rate of save, let's put it the positive way, that we're saving more people. Um, we're seeing some of our colleagues come back to work, you know, still don't smell everything quite right uh, in some cases, but we've seen, we've had a few uh, uh, physicians who came back after they had, uh, we're pretty sick with it, you know, kind of along the, the way Chris Cuomo was, you know, where it was really hit them hard and now they're back. So that gives hope. And I think um, there, there's this thought that it's not going to be quite as bad as the last time. And that we, at least we know now, you know, the enemy, you know, mm. uh, so at least we know what to expect in a way. Uh, it's not like, oh no, what, what's going to happen this time or, or what's going to happen that time. Now we, now we have a little bit better options and th- there's hope too. There's new medications and the fact that, you know, all those studies that I'm reading from the New England Journal, um, offer a lot of, uh, promise, um, and, you know, have debunked some of the, some of the, uh, political, uh, reports that came out about what, what might be helpful and what might not be. You have been exceptionally helpful, my friend. I mean, you, you thank you for educating our audience. Thank you for what you're doing every day, getting up from your cot behind you and, and going downstairs. You're going to hang up this Zoom and go back down there now and continue to fight the fight. So you are a, a tremendous leader. Uh, I'm honored to have you as a friend and grateful that you came back on this guest uh, on the show as a guest. You represent the best of what your profession and this country are all about. So I just want to thank you and, and thank all your colleagues. And uh, when you head back down there, tell them viva la resistance and, uh, and we've, we've got their back. But we're really grateful for you, man, especially taking time out of 
out of the fight to join us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's and, uh, always great to see you. And um, I, you know, again, I don't know that I deserve half of what you're saying, but I, I you know, you, you really do help inspire. Um, and even, even like the, the comparison that you gave, you know, that we were talking about before with the, we're in the resistance now, the occupied France, it kind of helps frame things a little bit for us. Mm-hmm. And it, it does give us hope as well. So well, thank you. For I also, I realized you told me I owe you some whiskey, so you didn't get the uncle nearest that's coming your way. Okay, and I'm going to find out what happened to your Bravo Sierra gear. We've actually got a, a new supporter of the show that I love, and I'm going to send you some. Uh, Tommy John, it makes incredible clothes for men and women, and they've got these incredibly comfortable men's lounge joggers. They're like the most comfortable pants. In the, I don't know if you can wear them under your scrubs, but maybe you can. I'm going to get those to you. Shout out to Tommy John, but you're going to be our first guest to get a pair of these. Uh, and you can rock them underneath your scrubs or on your cot or wherever you go, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you do, brother. Stay vigilant and stay frosty. All right. You as well. Winter is here. Snow has fallen. I am freezing my ass off in a car as I record this. But there are still some cool cats that help me and this show stay frosty and bring the fire and warm hearts to help us get through these cold days. So a couple big thank yous. First of all, of course, our magnificent guest, Dr. Paul Hazer. He's a courageous leader and a tremendous patriot and his amazing wife, Karen, their daughter, Gabby, and all their kids. But my thanks to Paul and his entire courageous team at Brookdale. I also forgot to thank Paul for the awesome chair. After he heard and saw my interview back in episode 74 with the incredible Fred Gutenberg, Paul actually sent me a chair. He mailed me a chair, the same super cool red and black video game chair that Fred had in the episode. Paul sent it to me because I said I liked it during the episode. So thanks for that too, Dr. Paul. Not only are you saving lives, you sent me a cool chair. But my thanks seriously to you and your entire team for all that you do. Thanks to the always frosty Righteous Media team, Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz. They're all bringing the heat every single day, but especially this winter, they're continuing to bring the fire, and I am grateful for them and all they do to keep this episode and every episode warm and hot and fresh. Speaking of fresh, thanks to our friends at Uncle Nearest. They continue to support this podcast, the best premium American whiskey inspired by the best whiskey maker the world never knew, Nathan Nearest Green. Check them out at UncleNearest.com. And thanks to Tommy John, a new supporter of this podcast. They sent me a case of their amazing men's lounge jogger pants. And these things are amazing. I don't even know if I can call them pants because they're more comfortable than anything I've ever put on before. So my thanks to Tommy John. They have a great saying, comfort all through the house with gifts for every guy at the click of a mouse. And they even got some rhymes. For guys, stay at home, forget crowded malls, shop underwear, lounge, and clothing to nestle him bicep to balls. And they got stuff for women too. Naughty and nice breathable options to ornament her in softness. I got to tell you, my wife loves this stuff. Underwear, t-shirts, but incredible loungewear. It's kind of like the uniform shop for the pandemic. So check them out, TommyJohn.com. My thanks to the team at Tommy John. Paul Hazer and all of our guests are going to get those new amazing men's lounge jogger pants. They make a great gift. Speaking of a gift, every week we continue to bring you a gift of a new episode on Vice TV of While the Rest of Us Die. 
Episode three ran this past week called The Enemy Within. It was another powerful episode, episode three in the series of six. And if you missed it on Vice TV or online, here's a taste. On the next While the Rest of Us Die, we think FEMA exists to keep us safe. But it's really there to protect itself. You cannot call it a natural disaster unless you believe that it is, in fact, natural for a government to neglect its citizens of color. It is a cataclysmic failure on every level. While the rest of us die, Secrets of America's Shadow Government. New episode, Monday at 10 on Vice. In the latest episode, we went from major disasters to civil unrest. And when the shit goes down the vast machinery of a system that's there to protect its citizen fails its most vulnerable. We dug deep into Hurricane Katrina. And if you missed it, Jameel Smith is so good and really, really important. You may remember Jameel Smith of Rolling Stone from back in episode 46 that I did in February. We recorded it in Los Angeles at Crooked Media headquarters. Jameel and I had a red stripe, but he's a reporter, an activist, a storyteller, and an incredible rising voice on politics, culture, race, and more. But we had a hard-hitting conversation that was the middle of Black History Month back in episode 46 that you should check out. We were talking about uh, race and our racist president. And we talked about why so many people in this country are angry with good reason. We also talked football, beer, and we predicted why Bernie Sanders wouldn't win. But Jamil's great. And he really dug into Hurricane Katrina and how much of that was forgotten by so many. The episode also ends with an emotional flurry of gut punches, some incredible work by the director and my friend Anthony LaPay. It's narrated by episode 55 guest Jeffrey Wright. If you never heard that, go back and check out Angry Americans episode 55. But thanks to Sean Ephraim and Ephraim Films, Anthony LaPay, and everybody at Vice, there is another episode coming on Monday, December 7th, another one on Monday, December 14th, and the final one on Monday, December 21st, all at 10 p.m., So you got it coming on Monday and two more Mondays after that. Righteous Media and I are very proud to be a part of this series that's got folks talking. And thanks again to all of you who joined us for our first ever Angry Americans Monday Night Cocktails with me. It was for Patreon members only, but we're going to do another one. Monday, December 7th, 8.45 p.m. You can have a Zoom drink with me and get an early preview of episode four of While the Rest of Us Die before it airs on Vice. We're also going to talk about this episode and some of our guests upcoming. We've got gifts, guests, inside scoop, but it's only for our Patreon members. So you can join now. Go to patreon.com backslash angry Americans, where it's linked wherever you got this podcast. Please check it out. It's only five bucks a month to become a Patreon member. You can get special access to events like this and our cocktail hour coming up on Monday. I hope to see you there. We will all stay frosty. I will be coming to you live from my cold garage. And if you missed any of the episodes of While the Rest of Us Die, you can go to vicetv.com. You can binge all three of the first episodes at any time. Thanks to everyone who continues to play Guest the Guest on social media. Lots of winners, too many to count, lots of repeat winners. And one of them was Leo Cortez. So big shout out to Leo Cortez. He got his merch. We sent him a couple of Angry Americans t-shirt. He correctly guessed the guest in episode 84 with Molly McHugh, an episode that still got people talking if you haven't checked it out. But my thanks to Leo Cortez and everybody else. If you want to get some of that cool merch, just like Leo, you can have it in time for the holidays. Go to angryamericans.us. We've got lots of cool merch there. It is all American made. It is all super comfortable. And it is all incredibly righteous. And just like Leo reached out, I always want to hear from you. So wherever you are, tweet, 
post on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube, and call. You can even call us. It's 833-33-ANGRY. It's 833-33-ANGRY. It's a toll-free number, if anyone still cares about that anymore, but it is toll-free. We came up with a cool number, 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a ring, send us a tweet, post on our social, and you know what will happen. I'll make you famous. As always, and especially going into the winter and the holidays, I want to thank my family, my amazing wife, and my fantastic two boys, Christmas is obviously coming. We celebrate Christmas in my family. And you know what that means. Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. He'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. Can you sign this for me? Oh, hi. Santa's coming. Yes, with two little boys, we are counting the days. And we are watching Elf, which if you haven't seen, you need to. My kids and wife are watching it upstairs right now. It's my single favorite Christmas movie. Maybe second only to Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas, which I talked about last year. But yes, Buddy the Elf, Will Ferrell, in my favorite parties ever played, is playing often in my house. And Santa is coming. We saw him end the Macy's Thanksgiving parade where my son noticed that Santa wasn't wearing a mask. Very astute, my son. Well, it made me think that it might be smart to make Santa the first person to get the vaccine. Whether he gets it or not, he is coming, even in a pandemic, and it's still a few weeks away, so until then, Elf on a Shelf is back. Our elf is named Rocket. He's coming just in time because I definitely wasn't getting enough sleep. So now every night I have to find new and creative ways to hang a tiny little elf somewhere in our house. Your suggestions are welcome. If you have elf on a shelf suggestions, please hit me up. Let me know. But thanks to Santa Claus in advance and to Rocket and to all the elves, all the helpers who make the holidays special for so many others. And this holiday, we need all of you. We need you. There's plenty of reason to be angry. But there's also a way to turn it. There's a way to channel it. There's a way to harness it. There's a way to make an impact, even in the winter and now more than ever, for you to turn that anger, frustration into positive impact. Now, this winter, more than ever, you can be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show... I give you a way to be a social and political elf, to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can be impactful Americans. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like our show, the actions are always packed with the four eyes of integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And this winter, this hard, long winter, we all need a little magic. How is Santa ever gonna find us here in this little old town? How will eight great big reindeer land on the top of our house? A little magic, a little magic, a little magic in the air. A little magic, a little magic. Can you feel the magic everywhere? 
we're going to need magic. And this is my favorite new Christmas song. It's magic. It's been on repeat in my house all week. It's by an artist named Liz Longley that I heard on Radio Woodstock. But it's been playing in our house where we are fully remote learning again for our kindergartner. We got two months of in-person, five days a week learning before a new shutdown happened. And I'm thankful especially to the teachers and the school leaders everywhere for your continued patience and innovation in the face of this madness. And it made me think that any new stimulus that comes out of Washington should include a massive focus of support for teachers, pay increases, training, equipment, mental health support, and more. This is the moment, this holiday season, it's the time for America to show real respect and appreciation for these heroes. And it looks like stimulus negotiations are at long last gaining some momentum. The nation's top Democrats, including Biden, have rallied behind a $908 billion COVID relief proposal. It's got growing bipartisan support, and it's going to include $300 a week in unemployment aid, money for small businesses and vaccine distributions, and more. It would not include a second stimulus check, which I hope we can get through early next year. But the group is looking to present the finished package any day now with an eye toward negotiating terms and bringing it to a vote in the next few weeks before they leave for Christmas break. So House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are looking to set their sights on December 11th as the day to pass another coronavirus stimulus bill. That's also the same day that funding for the federal government would run out. But we need this stimulus. America needs this holiday gift. We need a little bit of magic. And you can help. Go to congress.gov. If you've never done it, now is the time. Go to congress.gov, go to the right side of the page, and find your two senators and representative. If you don't know who they are, no problem. You put in your address, and congress.gov will tell you who your senators and your representative are. And this holiday, give the gift of action. Call them. Call them and demand they pass a stimulus this year. Our country, our economy, our sick and dying, our helpers cannot wait. They need help now. They need a stimulus under their Christmas tree this winter. It's how we can all be helpers. It's how we can all say thank you and give people hope this winter. And maybe get something to work in Washington again which would truly be a Christmas miracle and would truly be magical. We all need some magic this winter and some holiday love. And I always want to send love, especially to the folks who are out there on the front lines, in our hospitals, in our military, riding in ambulances, holding the line. Winter is here. And you're all braving that now, too. Standing in the cold, helping make the holidays better for others. And we're going to need you. And we're going to support you. And we'll adapt, improvise, and overcome. Stay tuned and subscribe for free here and share. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. Wherever you are, please share this podcast. Share with your families and friends. Give the gift of the four eyes. Share this podcast. It's the best price gift in all of the land. It's free. So share it with everybody you know and help us continue to grow this movement week by week through this winter and into the spring. And this winter, it's okay to be angry, especially now. But no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention. And we're all in it together, especially this winter. We can also do our part to help each other out 
and lift each other up in whatever way we can. And there's one way that's proven, scientifically. Best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Winter is here, but so are the holidays. And that means singing. And it also means heroes. And of course, it means Mariah, lots and lots of Mariah, but it also means heroes. And it's a special time for the heroes to step up. Heroes like Dr. Paul Hazer, but also everyday heroes. That means all of us doing our part. That means you. This winter, more than any other time, we need everyone to be heroic. Whether you're a doctor on the front line, a teacher in the classroom, a teenager pushing through online school, a veteran in a nursing home, or a concerned citizen just doing your best to wear a mask, wash your hands, and keep social distance. And by projecting kindness in this especially hard winter. America is a country of ordinary people who do extraordinary things. And America is still a country of heroes. That means all of us. This winter, the hero truly lies in you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. This winter especially, stay frosty. And stay vigilant, America. <laughs>